You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Tommy Shelby. Tommy is a professor in the Department of African and African-American Studies and the Department of Philosophy at Harvard University. His research and teaching interests include social and political philosophy, Africana philosophy, history of black political thought, and philosophy of social science. He is the editor of Hip Hop and Philosophy and the author of We Who Are Dark, Philosophical Foundations of Black Solidarity, and the recently released Dark Ghettos, Injustice, Dissent, and Reform. In this episode, we talk about dark ghettos, integration, the moral permissibility of crime, hip-hop and dissent, and so much more. Hello, Tommy, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing Great well. To be on. I'm doing well. So how did you get interested in philosophy? Wow. Um, so I, I went to Florida A&M, and you know, I'm since I was a first-generation college student, I, I was very much focused on getting my credential so I could get a job somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I started out like a lot of people did in this school of business and industry and did okay there, but I sort of found it boring in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, so much of my childhood, I felt like boredom was the, the central feature of it. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I kind of wanted to stay away from that. Um, and it didn't really seem like any amount of money could could make up for it. So I, I just started doing lots of classes, uh, figuring if I could just finish school, I'll probably be all right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took classes in sociology and in uh, psychology, religion. And I had a couple of religion professors who said, you know, you ought to really consider taking a class in philosophy. You know, I think that's, I think it would suit you better than studying religion. And, um, and so I did. I took a couple of philosophy classes, one in political philosophy, one in logic. And I just loved it immediately. Just It just suited me. So in comparison to the other disciplines in which you were taking class, what is it about philosophy for you? I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I have, you know, probably sociology is probably my second love. So I probably could have done that too. Yeah. But I think, you know, I spent a lot of time on my, on my own as a child in my own head. And I'm pretty introverted. And so uh, I think just a kind of contemplation of it, the kind of, you know, spending a lot of time thinking, rolling a thing over in your head and thinking it through. I think that probably, maybe that just sort of suited me a little bit more. I like the idea that you could kind of, you know, all these questions were sort of connected and can move, you know, between topics within philosophy uh, pretty freely. And you could connect those those philosophical questions with other issues in the broader world of ideas, which is also a passion of mine. So I think it just seemed like a more flexible way of kind of living a life of the mind. So how did you get interested in philosophizing about race? How did that come about? Oh, well, um, you know, it's funny. I think when I was at Florida A&M, I didn't, when I was studying philosophy, I wasn't really thinking of connecting the two. But I was very fortunate um, in that uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah came and gave a lecture. I think it was the beginning of my uh, junior year, if I remember correctly, maybe the end of my sophomore year. He was a part of a, this Woodrow Wilson program. They were sending black scholars to historically black colleges to kind of encourage students to consider a career in academia. And 
So he came, and I was the only philosophy major, so <laughs> I had a lot of opportunities to interact with him. But he also gave this lecture on race with a, in a packed room, and it was just... Uh, this was when he was first starting to write about these things, you know, like this might have been 87, 88. And I don't know, I just, it, it, he connected these things in my mind. I didn't think of these things as going together. But the way he did it made me think this was a possibility. I was also fortunate to meet Bernard Boxo, who also, he was, actually, he and, and his wife Jan were up for jobs at Florida State. And I did a lot of my philosophy classes at Florida State. Okay. And I met him as well when I was an undergraduate. And again, you know, here's this guy, he'd written this book, Bison Social Justice. So for me, once meeting the two of them, becoming familiar with their work, then it became like, oh, that's a live possibility. So you have a, a new book out called Dark Ghettos, Injustice, Dissent, and Reform. So let's talk about that. So the title is interesting, right? It's Dark Ghetto. So what is the ghetto? <laughs> and <laughs> and what makes dark ghettos different from other sites of poverty? Well, people define ghettos different ways. The way I define it, I think of ghettos, are these are predominantly black metropolitan neighborhoods with a, a, a high concentration of seriously disadvantaged people. And I should say, I say metropolitan here rather than, say, inner city, mm-hmm. um, since most ghettos are, not all ghettos are in the inner city, but some are, are in a suburban ring of a kind of broader commuting region, and that's been going on for some time. In the word ghetto, it, it was used to refer to sort of disadvantaged black urban neighborhoods. It's been used that way for a long time. kind of came into use among black intellectuals and scholars around the 1940s. I take it the idea was like to sort of suggest that the treatment of urban blacks who had, you know, recently migrated from the South to, to various urban centers had, you know, their treatment was very similar to the treatment that the Jews received under the Nazis. So the ghetto is sort of like a site where race and socioeconomic disadvantage and metropolitan space kind of come together to kind of a form a sort of, you know, like a kind of distinctive form of black subjugation. And so a lot of people, like you know Horace Caton and St. Clair Drake in their famous book, Black Metropolis, was published in 1945. They have a chapter called The Black Ghetto, and they were trying to draw those connections and thinking about, like, here are these blacks moving to Chicago, and look how, how race and space and class kind of constrict them in ways that almost like they're invisible walls holding them in, in various forms of subjugation. And, you know, a number of, of intellectuals have tried to take this up. You know, for me, Kenneth Clark wrote a book in 1965 called Dark Ghetto, and a lot of things I'm trying to do in the book is trying to pick up on themes and ideas I thought he was expressing in that book that haven't been taken up. And that's part of the reason why I call it Dark Ghetto, is in order to probably pay tribute to him and to, and to emphasize that I'm drawing on things that he's doing there. But a lot of ways I want to try to, you know, I think the ghettos are still with us, those ghettos that people were talking about, and I want to emphasize that 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 continuity in terms of the, a subject of investigation for those of us interested in black life. You consider several explanatory factors of dark ghettos, so so let's kind of talk about four of them. Tell me first, how does mass incarceration and crime explain the presence of dark ghettos? I'm drawing a lot of social science in the book, yeah, and um, I'm sort I'm trying to offer a kind of a philosophical interpretation of some of their findings. So I don't I'm not exactly trying to offer up empirical explanations of ghettos, but I try to take seriously some some explanations people have given, some factors people point to when they do it, and then I try to ask various you know questions that say, you know, moral and political forces might ask about those things. So crime, in particular, sort of violent crime, I take it, it negatively affects poor black communities in lots of different ways. And one of the ways it does that is it, it tends to deter people who, you know, have more financial means from 
living in those communities um, since they have the means to to leave them. And so thereby, as, you, as, as people with more means are, are able to, to leave communities where they perceive crime to be a problem, that was going to concentrate the number of disadvantaged people, people who have fewer means and, and less able to, to leave those environments. And, and that concentration of, of disadvantage is, is partly what people were talking about when they're talking about about ghettos. And so that's going to have that concentration of, of highly disadvantaged people is also going to affect neighborhood schools because you're going to have a higher proportion of very disadvantaged people in those schools. And that's going to make it more difficult to, to instruct them given the limited means that um, are typically used to educate them. It's also, of course, going to deter businesses from sort of setting up shop there or remaining and you end up with businesses that are primarily there to kind of prey on the poor rather than businesses that might be better for the people in those communities and clearly it, it's, it's sort of stressful i think for residents particularly i think women and girls who are exposed to street crime in particular and various forms of, uh, of sexual harassment and and some people are, are clearly attracted to to street crime especially adolescents young people can be attracted to it and and that's going to clearly have an effect on or can interfere with their education. And, and clearly sometimes it can send them to prison. In the case of mass incarceration, it obviously affects these communities in lots of ways, too. You know, one of the ways it does that is it sort of takes away people who could have otherwise provided you know, various forms of financial help, and child care assistance. But even once people you know, leave prison, uh, when they're incarcerated, sort of returns to their communities, they're often you know, much worse off as a result because now they have this felony conviction and that's going to make it very difficult for them to find work, to find housing. It's going to make them ineligible for various forms of public assistance and probably is going to end up leading them back into the illicit economy, which could end up put them back and put them back in jail. So it, there are other ways, but those are some of the ways in which I think people have pointed to how crime and incarceration can, can help to perpetuate these, these communities. And there are, there also are, are two other kind of more controversial explanatory factors that people have offered up, one of them being culture and the other being single mother families. So can you, can you kind of, I guess, elaborate on, on why those are explanatory factors for, for dark ghettos? Those are somewhat more complicated um, in that I think you're right. I mean, certainly more controversial. And the social scientists that tend to emphasize, say, cultural factors, you know, it varies depending on kind of where they are on their political spectrum, it tends to what they emphasize. But... I think that they, they tend to think of cultural factors here, like sh shared attitudes, beliefs, values, social identities. They think that some of these things have been forged under ghetto conditions, and at least some of these patterns, cultural patterns, inhibit poor people in these neighborhoods from seizing you know, available opportunities or to make the best use of the opportunities that are available to them, even if those opportunities are, are insufficient, as I think a lot of social scientists, especially sociologists, believe. Some of those cultural characteristics, you know, have to do with street crime, but not all of them. I think a lot of times people are pointing to things like, you know, attitudes toward work or school or family life, consumption patterns, things like that. And they think that some of these, some of these things, some of these patterns um, make it harder for the poor to escape poverty. So now I don't view some of these transgressions against mainstream norms as you know pathological or anything. I tend to think of them often as a kind of healthy defiance in the face of various forms of injustice that the people in these communities face. And, and it does sometimes. I, I wouldn't want to deny that it sometimes can make the practitioners worse off when they engage in some of these things. But I, I don't think that that then licenses the state to, say, engage in various forms of, you know, cultural form or behavior modification. And it certainly doesn't justify the kind of withdrawal of public support in an attempt at a kind of tough love and whatnot. So I, I think sometimes some of the, what's being seen as kind of suboptimal kind of cultural practices that kind of make people worse off are 
probably better seen as at least among some people as people's refusal is just kind of just go along with 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 expectations that they regard as unreasonable i think in the case of the family social scientists tend to emphasize family structure has a long history obviously and then they can with their primary concern is they i think they think look a, a single women who have limited education and limited job related skills that they're they're going to have a lot of difficulty earning enough income to maintain a household and and and, and also finding enough time and energy to, to properly look after their children and they're also going to find it pretty challenging to escape ghetto poverty and so thereby they're going to end up exposing their children to some of the hazards of, of life in these communities so again i don't myself think there's anything wrong with uh, single parent families um, provided they you know get the public support that they're due which they typically don't and I, I tend to think that much of the difficulty people point to sort of family structure most of the difficulty is better understood by looking at the the way the labor market is structured and looking at the way that we tend to really devalue the parenting work that that women do and not seeing the their their role in rearing the next generation is playing a very important part of kind of maintaining the social life that we all share together so i myself don't regard family structure as the right thing to focus on but i can see why why some people have done so so if dark ghettos exist and according to sociologists they may exist for these particular reasons then the question one important question to ask is what do we do about them so you are critical of the ways in which the U.S. government have tried to address the problems of the ghetto. And one of the ways has been what you call the medical model. What is the medical model? What are some examples of it? And what are some serious limitations does it have on your view? Big questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so let me try. Take a stab. So so the, the public debate that's been going on for some time, certainly since the mid-60s, around issues of ghetto poverty, the, these must have been disagreement over between you know people who are focus on so-called structural factors, so lack of jobs, race discrimination, substandard schools, and so on, and the people who think that, um, no, there are these behavioral factors, bad reproductive decisions, subpar parenting, avoidance of work and illicit economy, you know, criminal conduct, so on. And, of course, there are some people, like our former president, Barack Obama, who insisted that it's, a, it's both. So that's, and that's a standard position a lot of people take in, um, about these issues. So that debate tends to move from talking about, well, how much of it is structure, how much of it is behavior, to a debate over, okay, once we identify the factor, you know, well, how can the government kind of intervene into the lives of the ghetto poor, almost like the government's kind of like a doctor, kind of like, well, now you got the diagnosis, let me see if I can intervene in a way that's going to be most cost-effective, you know, get the biggest bang for your buck, as it were, right? Should that be a jobs program? Should we integrate neighborhoods? Should we increase crime control measures and so on, right? So now I think that that way of framing things in this kind of social scientific policymaking, I think it tends to sort of marginalize crucial questions of political morality, mm-hmm. both sort of ideals of social justice and that we should be trying to striving to realize, right, in practice. And But it also tends to marginalize questions about morality of activism and resistance. And so I... In the book, I, I identify what I, what I regard as sort of three main pitfalls of framing things in this way, what I would call sort of status quo bias, downgraded agency, and unjust advantage blind spot. I'll just let me see if I can sort of quickly gloss those. So status quo bias is what it sounds like, right? So, you know, if you, you know, when you go to see the doctor, I mean, they basically, you know, they're going to assume that, you know, basic anatomy, physiology, right, they're not going to try to change you know, the structure, right, of your, of your, of your body, right, they're going to try to figure out how to intervene in a way that leaves that in, in, in place, right? So, so similarly, right, you can have the same kind of way of thinking about, about ghettos. You can say, look, here's this problem. How can we figure out how to kind of get them to kind of fit in, you know, with the rest of the structure, but leaving, leaving the structure kind of in the background and not 
not kind of giving it the kind of critical scrutiny that might have, because obviously social structure can be changed in a way in which the, 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 the body's anatomy cannot. So I think that there's a tendency to do that, and I, and I think you, you want to kind of bring that structure to the, into the light so that you can, can, can give it proper scrutiny. I think there's also a kind of problem of, I hear we call it downgraded agency, and that's and the tendency here, and again, a lot of the social scientists, especially sociologists, they tend to be pretty liberal, sometimes pretty left-wing, and I think they, but they also have a tendency to kind of think of the ghetto poor as just kind of people in need of, of other people's help. Mm. And they just try to think about how can, how can we get people to help them, either, you know, wealthy people, private foundations or the government to kind of to help them. But it, and, and, and less frame things in terms of, OK, how can we now, you know, as fellow citizens, as residents of this country, work together to try to make it into a society we can all feel good about and want to support, right, to make it into a more just society, I mean, that's an occupational hazard, I don't know, <laughs> but there's a tendency not to kind of see the people who are being studied. There are, there are exceptions, obviously, but there's a tendency to not see the people who are disadvantaged in these neighborhoods as active moral and political agents in their own right. And then I think there's a tendency to just to be blind to all the ways in which the advantage benefiting from an unjust social structure. I mean, they're taking they're taking advantage of opportunities that are not afforded to others that should be afforded to those others. They're, they have a lot of ill-gotten gains. And so it's very easy to to lose sight of those ill-gotten gains and just think, well, how, you know, how can we use our privilege, as it were, to help them, as opposed to thinking that maybe that privilege and advantage is, is, is a self-assigned, that the society is unjust. So I wanted to reframe things a bit away from that way of thinking about things in order to avoid those pitfalls. So I want to get to some specifics, and I, I was thinking while you were talking, you mentioned integration in the book, and it seems as if, you know, integration has always sound like a great solution. According to kind of your criticism of the, of the medical model, what is the problem with integration? Well, I think it depends on how you want to justify it, I think, and how you, what you, what people mean by integration. Now, I think a lot of people, when they've thought about this, they, they point to segregation as a problem, which you cannot deny, but people mean different things by that. So if desegregation means let's prevent people from discriminating in, in housing, say, and renting and lending, and generally in the real estate market, if, if it means preventing that from occurring, and if it means making sure that people have their fair share of economic resources so that they can live where they can afford, but given what they're due economically, then who can deny that, right? And and I think it's appropriate for people to have the liberty to choose their the neighborhood communities free from that kind of discrimination and exclusion and equipped with the resources that they're, they're due. But I think some people, when they talk about integration, they're focused on so-called social capital deficits. So they think there are people who are very disadvantaged, black people particularly very disadvantaged, who could do better if they were in neighborhoods with people who were more advantaged because they could then find their way into their social networks and that would help give them greater access to opportunities and so on. Now, I find that troubling for a, a number of reasons. Some of the reasons just have to do with the ways in which, it, as I mentioned, the kind of uh, unjust blind spot problem because it, you know, what, you, what you're basically asking of the ghetto poor is that they kind of work their way into the lives of the privileged and the privileged can then kind of dole out these privileges on them so that they could do better, which is, I think, not a tenable uh, position from the standpoint of many people. People might be forced into doing that because maybe that's the best they could do is to try to get an affluent person. And I don't just mean white people. It could be an affluent black person. Try to get them to see them with favor and help them. But I think that's a kind of degrading way of dealing with the problem. But also just, I think people should, should have the liberty to choose their communities. There's nothing wrong with wanting to live in a black community. 
and it, you know, we've have a long history of living in such communities, and some people really enjoy them. They they're very attached to them. It's a, a place that feels like home to them, and I don't see any reason why they should just be dispersed in that way in order to try to kind of work that get them to work their way into the the lives of more affluent people. I think what they should be what should happen is they should be protected from unjust forms of exclusion and properly equipped equipped economically so that they can choose the neighborhoods they want to live in. How about welfare reform? particularly if we've seen it in the last 20 years. <laughs> Big topic. Um, but there's so many dimensions to it. I mean, one dimension of it that I try to spend a lot of time on um, has to do with uh, work requirements. And, you know, we basically, welfare as an entitlement to people, uh, who, to poor people was abolished. And so now for the last 20 years, if you want to get access to basic necessities beyond, say, just basic food stamps, if you want anything more substantial in terms of support from the public, then you're going to have to go through a pretty onerous and austere welfare system which has various requirements, including work requirements with time limits on how long you can receive such support and so on. But you're not entitled to a job. I mean, you have to, yeah. <laughs> to, find, to find one in the economy as it currently exists. And the economy as it currently exists is not terribly hospitable to people who don't have kind of highly developed skills and, and a fair bit of, of education, often inaccessible to people um, living in these neighborhoods. So you're then kind of just pushed into a part-time, marginal, dead-end service jobs, if you can get them. <laughs> and it does seem to me that that's not a, an appropriate way to respond to the plight of the people who are confined to these neighborhoods, and nor is it, I don't think it's a good response to any any poor person, but I think in particular it's not a good response to the people in these in these neighborhoods. There are other many other dimensions to welfare reform that one might discuss, but that's one of the ones that I find the most troubling. You mentioned this before, but I want us to go into deeper detail. So the subtitle of your book doesn't just have the terms injustice and reform in it, but it also has the word dissent. And mm-hmm. given that the ghetto poor live in unjust conditions, you claim, quote, some of the conduct poor urban blacks engage in is harmful to others, self-destructive. On the other hand, some of their actions are best seen as a moral response to injustice that is a form of resistance or dissent, end quote. So you list several, I guess, forms of dissent. So I want you to kind of explain them a little bit more. So how is refusing to work, for example, and participation in crime examples of, quote, expressions of justified rebellion? Okay, you're trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> okay. Okay. I did say it. So, well, look, under, look, if we were living under just conditions, then... I'd say, look, everybody should, everybody who's able should make some kind of contribution to the maintenance of their society, make some kind of positive contributions to the maintenance of their society, do some kind of valuable um, work. I don't necessarily mean that work has to be something that the market will reward. There's work that's important to be done that the market won't reward, but should make some kind of contribution of that sort. Um, look, people would be benefiting from this, from the work of others, and so you should do your part, you know, spirit of reciprocity to help make, that, to help make these benefits possible. Right? But in an unjust society, particularly uh, at the site of, of the economy, I think sometimes refusing to work can be can be an appropriate form of protest. So suppose you thought, as I just go back to the example we were just talking about, suppose you thought it's unjust to make access to basic necessities conditional on your willingness to work in a low-wage menial service job you might say, I think such a such a, a system is demeaning to the to the poor, and and not go along, not be willing to. If you can, not, not everybody can. Some people are just by economic circumstances just forces them to, to have to submit. 
But if you could refuse and you could and you're willing to kind of absorb the cost of doing so, that might be one way of conveying your dissatisfaction with the way that welfare is structured. You might similarly feel that way about the work that's available, the way it's rewarded. You might say, look, I mean, it's, you know, you're not getting a living wage. You're working a lot, and but you're not able to live with any degree of, of comfort or economic security. And, you know, rather than, again, just to submit to that and just sort of, well, I'll just go along and just accept the jobs that are available, you might say, well, I won't go along. I won't, I won't refuse. It's kind of a, a way of withdrawing your support for certain features of, the, of, the, of your society that you regard as, as, as deeply unfair. So I think that can be, that, that kind of action can be justified. I don't want to make it sound like I think everybody who re- refuses to work is doing it for that reason. I think that's probably implausible, but I, I think some are. Uh, and I think if, if more did so, and they did so in a way that was open, you know, that is, they made it very clear that's the reason they're doing it. Others might be willing to, to join in and support. And you could maybe, you know, galvanize people around around getting some change and around the way the labor market is structured and, and the way work is rewarded. Crime's harder. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I say take Martin Luther King's discussions of, of ghetto riots. So he, he would emphasize that look, unlawful actions that are directed toward symbols of wealth and objects of need, this can be an expression of dissatisfaction with the economic order. That is both distribution of income, distribution of wealth, distribution of work itself. And I think that's right. And I also agree with King that the violent crime, whether that's ordinary, say, robbery or something like that, or, uh, or a full-scale riot, for that matter, I don't, I don't think that's permissible, nor do I think it's really a productive form of dissent. But there might be some nonviolent economic crimes that are uh, not only a, a means to acquire sort of some needed income, but that can be a way of refusing to go along with a, a set of unjust property relations and an unfair tax scheme. So I think, uh, I don't advocate it because I think we're living in a very punitive moment in U.S. history and the penal system will come down really hard. So I don't, as a practical matter, I don't, I think it's probably not a terribly effective way to express your dissent. But that's different from saying that it's permissible. I don't say, I don't want to say that. I think it can be permissible to refuse to obey certain laws when you believe that your society is seriously unjust, especially seriously unjust at the site of the economy. And I, I do think people do that sometimes. I think they feel like, you know, rather than just submit to the expectation that one will just work these jobs and just become a part of the, of the insecure workforce of people living without a living wage, mostly engaged in doing the work of being a kind of professional servant class to the affluent, many of whom wealth is, is unjust, rather than just kind of go along and play that role, some people say, well, no, I'll just participate in the underground economy, an illicit economy to try to earn money and, and thumb, my, thumb my nose at those who expect me just to accommodate myself to my place in this in such an unfair economic order. So it seems like that the issue is, is, is a problem of justice, right? It's a problem of structure. There are people that may not be as optimistic that our incoming government will be able to uh, solve the problem of dark ghettos, given that some people are reluctant to think that they are concerned about issues of justice. So what can normal folk do to help eradicate dark ghettos? Well, in this current moment, you know, these are different times and it's hard to know exactly what to do. I mean, I think we're probably more in, a, in playing defense, trying to protect 
the little that we have. So some of that, some of the things that we might have done under different under a different regime, not make a lot of sense, right? So some of the, you know, given that it's very highly likely that there's going to be a crackdown on street crime, it's been announced that there will be probably certain forms of dissent that involve lawbreaking is going to be going to be very risky and perhaps quite damaging. So maybe that's not the most productive way. I think if you can overcome the various collective action problems and build some solidarity and do things jointly. That is, you can get a lot of people to engage in refusing to go along with things, which is not, a, it's a tall order. But there does seem to be a lot of sentiment around cutting across lines, various lines of difference from citizen, immigrant, undocumented, you know, ways in which people are, are more willing to find forms of solidarity that they maybe might not have been able to forge in a, in, a, in a previous time. Maybe they can forge them now. We should be on the lookout for those links ways that we could collectively support one another in refusing some of the repression that looks like it's coming. It's hard to know what to do about what's likely to be sort of severe austerity, just kind of withdrawal of public support in the case of, say, HUD, which does a lot more than than just try to support integration. It also provides a lot of income support for housing, housing support for people who don't have housing. If that gets you know stripped of a lot of its funding, which it probably will, that's going to make a lot of people quite insecure. And again, I think probably we'll have to support each other in that way too. That is, try to find ways for those who are insecure and when it comes to housing to try to support them, whether that's a matter of raising money, which I think can be done now much easier than it used to be in the past. You could raise a lot of money online to help people to be able to afford housing, allowing people to to live with you like family members, kin, friends to live with you, to protect them from from basically being on the street. I think we're that's the kind of place we're in now as we at the same time i mean do that's kind of save, save as many as you can kind of approach but at the same time looking forward to trying to make some progress in in the future which means doing the work on the ground locally at the state level trying to strengthen organizations fighting for change but that's more of a long-term view which we have to be engaged in that kind of activity as well So you have written about hip-hop before. You edited a volume called Hip-Hop and Philosophy. And the last chapter of your present book is entitled Impure Descent, and you talk about political rap. Why do you give hip-hop serious uptake in your thinking? Well, you know, everything's personal, I suppose. I love hip-hop. I grew up on it. Into this year, I'll be 50 years old. And my, my, you know, my generation of youth, we were the ones, ones who forged and, and were the main listeners to, to hip-hop when it came on the scene in the 70s. So I have a kind of attachment to it in that way. But also, I think more in terms of intellectually, you know, I mean, there have been intellectuals, you know, the boys wrote about the spirituals, Baraka wrote about the blues and jazz and so on. And I saw in some ways I'm, I'm interested like they were in not only the aesthetic dimensions of black music, but also in its political dimensions. And so I've been thinking about it, not just as a, a listener who does it for pleasure, listen to it for pleasure, but also as a person thinking about what's the What's the political significance of this particular popular art form? And of course, I, I think in that art form, you do see a lot of philosophical reflection. And I've you know, tried in my, my own way to kind of draw out some of that and some of the things I've written. What is one person today in hip hop that comes to mind when you think of an impure dissenter? One is hard. <laughs> uh, there's so many you couldn't. I mean, you know, my favorite MC is is Nas, and I'm sure some of that's for the same reasons I just mentioned, right? I mean, he's only a little bit younger than me. And I think I've always found a kind of kinship in in his work from his first album, Illmatic, his more recent work. You know, I find him as a person who, I mean, he clearly was, from that early work, and, and it's continued in a lot of his work, both someone who's reflecting on life in the ghetto, someone who grew up in Queensbridge, reflecting on life 
in the ghetto and what that has meant to him, but also expressing a real spirit of defiance and rebellion, but also a kind of, not in a kind of nihilistic way, but in a way that kind of embraces life, a kind of way that embraces the spirit in a way that expresses a sense of justice. And that's always been there. I mean, it's there. It's mixed with other things, too. The kind of celebration of certain aspects of street life. Some of them might be problematic, but I've always been drawn drawn to him. There are others, but he's probably my, my favorite. So you mentioned that you are a first generation college graduate, but you're also a first generation college graduate who is now a tenured professor at Harvard. Existentially and practically, what is that like? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. What do you mean? What is it like? I mean, in terms of the, the path or, or the route, I mean, I guess I'm I'm with Rakim. You know, it ain't, it ain't where you're from. It's where you're at. <laughs> I don't really spend a lot of time reflecting on that. I mean, I, you know, I entered college 30 years ago. So a lot of things have happened. At each stage, found myself facing new challenges and, and finding my way under them or over them, often with the help of others. I think, you know, as, as a young person, I, you know, my family, we moved around a lot and we find ourselves in a, a range of circumstances, put it like that. I think probably has equipped me to adjust to new circumstances easily. So, you know, at each stage from moving from college to grad school to my first job at Ohio State to moving to Harvard, I mean, I, I, I was able to kind of just adjust to the new circumstances. But, you know, I am, I think, by disposition, temperament, I'm an intellectual. Intellectual is intellectual, if you like. And I love the world of ideas. And so whatever the institutional, cultural trappings of a place like Harvard or any, you know, elite university in this country, you know, you have people there who care about ideas, care deeply about them and willing to devote and have devoted their lives to the life of the mind. And there's a kind of kinship that transcends lots of other forms of difference and different backgrounds, different experiences that I find there. And I'm able to kind of see maybe beyond those other differences to find that kinship. It's just a solidarity amongst people who care about ideas. So that, in that way, I feel very, very at home at any university that I'm, that I'm at. You played high school basketball. If you could have been drafted in your senior year, Please do not be influenced by this question because you know who my favorite basketball player is. But if you could have been drafted in your senior year, what player would you want your career on the court to be most like? Kobe or LeBron? Now, you're not going to hold it against me. I'm not going to hold it against you. Um, I would probably say Kobe. I mean, now some of this, again, is biographical. My family moved to Los Angeles in 1979. This was the year that Magic Johnson came into the league. I was a huge Laker fan and remained so for many, many years until probably took me a while to adjust to becoming a Celtics fan, put it like that, because I was a, a, a big, big Lakers fan. And Kobe was, I even cheered for him in the garden here at Celtics, despite people around me looking at me like I was crazy. I always, I mean, again, on the court, not off the court, mm-hmm. on the court, I've always appreciated something he had that I always wish I'd had as a basketball player, which is just a kind of will, a will to win, a kind of driving spirit that uh, no matter the obstacles, no matter what you're faced against, a kind of belief, no, we will still win, you know. I love that about him. I love the way in which he worked so hard in the offseason to kind of shore up any weaknesses in his game. So wherever he thought that, like, I, I can improve that because if, if, I, if I don't, that's a way they can stop me. So I'm going to strengthen that. And he just constantly trying to improve the game on both ends of the court. You know, just being both as an offensive player and as a defensive player, I always sort of loved that. I mean, obviously love LeBron. LeBron's a terrific player, one of, the, one of the very best of all time. But I probably identify maybe a little bit more with Kobe's approach to the game. Okay. You can rebut. 
No, 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 no. I mean, everything I heard you say, every time you mentioned his name, I just replaced LeBron, and it was still true for, for the latter case. Thank you so much, Tommy, for coming on. I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me on. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.